Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order that they were published in. Currently, we're going through a short series examining in detail Philip Dick's 1956 novel, The Man Who Japed. This is part five of this series, so I urge you to go back and listen to the previous four episodes. But if you're just joining us, let me give you a brief summary of what happened in the first two-thirds or so of, of this interesting, uh, of one of the most interesting of Dick's early novels. In the first half of The Man Who Jave, we meet a man named Alan Purcell. And we really get to know a lot about this character and its conflicts, but he comes off in many ways as a very mysterious character. His job is he basically runs an agency that makes propaganda packets that help promote and conform to the ideology of the world government at the time known as MORAC or Moral Reclamation. This world emerged in the aftermath of a nuclear conflict due to the military takeover by a white South African military leader named Major Strike Strider. Purcell has one of his works criticized by his superiors in the government, and he's then forced to fire a longtime employee named Luddy. But he's immediately offered a job in the formal government bureaucracy, and not just any job. He's offered the job as uh, the replacement for the essentially the head of the propaganda branch of the government known as telemedia. We also learn that this is an expanding society with a frontier. Although many on the frontier are deemed morally and socially outcast, which is why they have to go there. The more moral you are, the closer you move to the center of the society. The less moral you're deemed, or if you can't conform, you get pushed farther and farther out to the rims. And there are various mechanisms for ensuring that this happens. Keeping the frontier in line, though, is a major preoccupation of the government. In the backdrop of all this are some strange journeys that Purcell seems to be taking. Later, we learn that the statue of Major Stryker the military leader, I think in previous episodes I was calling him General Strider, he's actually Major Strider, uh, has been seriously vandalized. But the extent of that vandalism is kept from the population at large. Purcell visits the site of this vandalism and collects various theories and details about what happened. In fact, he's the one who did it, and he and we learn very quickly that he's the one who did it, but why is still an open question. He meets a strange woman who gives him a card offering him a stay at the health resort. Her name is Gretchen Walparto. Later, he calls to make an appointment with this Dr. Malparto, Gretchen's brother. The health resorts, which is essentially this world's version of psychotherapy, is a way that the people who can't conform to Morak are pushed out to the frontiers because that's where there's all these health resorts out on these frontier planets. And so if you have to go to the doctor, you might end up out there. Later, during a public confessional where various members of the community are exposed for moral lapses, Due to the surveillance of small robots called juveniles, Purcell is called out for his strange behavior, particularly drinking late. One member of the community, a Mr. Wales, tries to defend him due to his position as a moral leader. Purcell later goes to a ther- the therapist, Malparto, who engages in a process of resurrecting memories. He remembers some of 
he remembers talking to some boys about the frontier. He remembers trying to buy some illegal scotch. And he remembers going to see some scavengers in Hokkaido, where he chooses not to buy an illegal copy of Ulysses, but instead drinks three glasses of sherry. And this is why he came back drunk that one day. His doctor suggests that it may be a precog or a clairvoyant of some sort. Purcell goes back to find his company has been subjected to some form of industrial espionage. Luddy, in fact, after quitting, has gone to work for a competitor, taking with him most of the research and uh, the different packets that his firm was working on. With this, he decides to, with this knowledge, he decides there's not much left for his agency to do, at least in the short term. So he decides to take the promotion, but he first tries to pro proffer to his wife the idea of leaving Earth altogether. After going back to Marparto, he is tested for psi powers, a, a whole bunch of them, like a dozen or so different psi powers he's tested for. He blacks out, though, and wakes up on another planet, living out a life that seems to be a reflection of his deepest desires, but is actually an uh, artificial construct put together by Marparto. It's a suburban, decadent life where Gretchen is posing as his wife. They are pursuing a life as swingers. He breaks free of this reality and after committing a crime is sent back to Earth. He arrives one day before he is about to start his new job. His future boss scolds him for being out of touch for a week or so and he's accused of having an affair. He defends himself, basically saying that you don't have any evidence that I'm having an affair. In fact, he isn't. Um, but he does go to prepare himself for the first day at work. And that's where we are. That's what happened in the, and I talk about this in more detail in the first four episodes of this series. But now on to the next section of The Man Who Japed. So Purcell arrives at work the very next day in his office, in his new office, and he immediately begins to undergo the transition and, you know, meeting the staff and going through all of this. His first real act as Telemedi is to revive a packet he issued up earlier in the novel and this is the one that was rejected and it's a tree metaphor and basically the tree is shown dying out in the frontier and the message here is that if you leave go too far from the center you're going to kind of lose your connection to the moral core of the society and that's a bad thing this was criticized because it it seemed to show the death of plant life in the frontier at the time the government's trying to promote an active agricultural policy in the frontier. We learn a little bit more as the novel goes on about what these packets entail. They seem to be not just like a propaganda poster. They seem to be a whole package of, of various media efforts. So it's more like a, an advertising, what we do all call an advertising campaign, I guess. So you might have uh, television programs or, you know, might be images, posters, radio programs or things like that. So even like television presentations could be part of these packets. Now he calls his wife to celebrate the good news of, you know, starting the new job and they actually make a date sort of to celebrate this. But he is really cagey about what happened the previous day when he was called to Mrs. Frost, his boss's office, and where his competitor accuses him essentially of having an affair, which in this society, which puts so much pressure on moral righteousness you know would have been a career-ending exposure now to his surprise the first vi formal visitor he has to his office is gretchen marpato who has basically chased him from this outer rim planet to to earth um, and so she basically comes there the next day and she has a lot on her mind when she gets there she has followed purcell as he escaped captivity she wants to apologize for 
her brother to a degree, but she also wants to set her role apart from her brother, and she wants to kind of paint the brother as the real perpetuator of what happened to him, these strange events that happened over the past week. We get a few details on what happened out there. It, it really comes off really mysterious to us, and I talked a little bit in the last episode how, or maybe it was, yeah, I think it was in the last episode, how when you first read this, it's really hard to know what's going on, and it's sort of explained here, but still how it all functions is not fully explained. All we know is that Dr. Malparto did something in constructing this reality for him. But at the same time, it does seem to reflect some of his inner desires or are these Dr. Malparto, you know, giving him the Svengali treatment where he somehow knows what he wants and kind of, you know, tries to give it to him in a package. And then the whole idea of making Gretchen his wife in this world, you know, where is that coming from? So all that's not really fully explained. Um, but she does call do her brother, Dr. Maparto, as a collector, and that seems to want to collect strange patients, and this kidnapping was just part of this effort to do just that. When Purcell asks what's so special about him, Gretchen starts to go on and describe this, and I think she even, like, you know, they have brain scans and things like this, and he's like, well, what's going on with me? What well, makes me special? It doesn't seem he has any psi power, and that's been floating around a lot, because Earlier in the novel, of course, he dam he damages the statue, and there's no good reason for him to do this. No good political reason. It's so quickly covered up by the government. So why do this at all? And the theory that both Malparto and then later on Purcell starts to play with is that maybe he's on some level a precog, you know, or has some clairvoyant ability, and he knows that by doing this, he's going to get fired, and that will save his life at some point. So that's kind of the main theory we're offered up in this part of the novel about why he did it. Um, but Gretchen has a, from our perspective, maybe a more banal answer, but from the perspective of Morak society, it's, it's much more profound. And that is what makes Purcell so unique is simply that he has a sense of humor. And that's lacking in this world. That's so focused on the work ethic, so focused on propriety, so focused on being morally right, that a lot of the joy, the, the kind of the little joys of life are purged from, from society. Right, and a lot of the things that Purcell does that are seen as so scandalous, like a kiss from a pretty girl or um, playing jokes on his wife, he does that a few times. Getting having a few drinks with some friends, these become things that can lead one to even lose their lease, lose their job. So it's really these little pleasures are are lost out as the society tries to purge out the big evils, the big sins, and. We learn here that humor is missing. And now when we go back and read the earlier parts of the novel with this in mind, we realize, yeah, he is sort of the only funny person in the story. No one else really tells jokes. And Purcell, when he does tell jokes, the response to it is always kind of horror or shock or offense. And so there seems to be something to this that maybe he is one of the few characters that actually does have a significant sense of humor. So she starts to lecture him on his own values and especially how he seems to hate everything about Morak society and that his entire life has been in constant conflict with Morak society. She says, this is such a goddamn mess. You've got this job, director of telemedia, the high post of morality, guardian of public ethics. You create ethics. What a screwy mixed up situation. But I want the job. Yes, your ethics are very high, but they're not the ethics of your this society. The block meetings, you loathe them. The faceless accusers, the juvenile, the busybody prying. This senseless struggle for leases, the anxiety, the tension and strain. Look at 
Myron Mavis in the overtones of guilt and suspicion. Everything becomes tainted. The fear of contamination, fear of committing an indecent act. Sex is moribund. People are hounded for natural acts. The whole structure is like a giant torture chamber with everyone staring at one another, trying to find fault, trying to break down one another. Witch hunts and star chambers, dread and censorship. Mr. Blue knows banning books. Children kept from hearing evil. Morak was invented by sick minds and it creates more sick minds. That's her lecture to him. Now, Purcell almost certainly agrees with this, but he doesn't want to really confess it. And we let's presume for a moment that Gretchen is right and that Purcell here has been sort of playing both sides all along, that he's always been a japer. And we can come back and look at different things like the packet with the tree that gets rejected. Maybe this wasn't the first time he threw in a packet that had a dubious Morak in it. Morak's just kind of the general noun for you know, like a, a morality or something that conforms to moral um, reclamation. You know, even that packet with the tree, maybe he was kind of, he knew it would be rejected and he was trying to see if he'll get through because he's a bit of a saboteur all along. Now he's going to come out by the end of the novel as a straight up saboteur. And we've already seen him work as a vandal. So maybe he's always been there and he's always been kind of working against the grain all throughout the novel. And I think that's one of the neat things about this novel is he comes off as such a straight laced character from the beginning, worrying about his job, being promoted, firing his incompetent employee, all those kinds of things. But actually, when you come back and read it again, you find that he's actually a humorous character. and He's actually kind of working within the system under protest the whole time. Alan, though, he goes a little bit farther and is a little honest with Gretchen. And he says that what you're doing is just as bad and that the psychotherapy and the resource are simply another side to Morak. Quote, as I see it, the resort acts as part of the system. Morak is one half and you're the other. Two sides of the coin. Morak is all work and you're all badminton and checker sets. Together you form a society. You uphold and support each other. I can't be in both parts and I prefer, and of the two, I prefer this. And she asked why. And he said, well, something's being done here. People are working. End quote. I, I talked about work before and this is a troubling issue in this whole novel. And that is that you have technological post-scarcity. You have the autofax system fully engaged in this world, which means production is done by machines, essentially. At least that's how I understand it, based on the other novels where autofax emerge. You have a lot of evidence here of automation. But at the same time, you don't have much consumerism. And then one of the things that identifies the off-world colonies is that they consume and they go shopping, which is something that's kind of frowned upon in Morak. The closer you get to the center. In fact, you're supposed to restrain yourself and be uh, stable and care about the future and all that stuff. In, in fact, what you have is the work ethic. You have the work ethic on steroids. So how do you craft a society in which you don't have any work that needs to be done on the one hand, and on the other hand, work is a necessity ideologically, right? And you do, the way you do this is you create a, a lot of busy work for people or you make people feel bad for not working, right? That's That seems to be partially what they're doing. And I, I'm interested in this because I think that's where something our, the West has to start to deal with as, especially like the United States, has to deal with as they come to, you know, the question of automation and to what degree how much of our work is going to be automated by machines and can that be stopped and should it be stopped? Well, you know, if we can't get away from the work ethic, this is going to create psychological damage it's going to cause economic harm it, you know people are going to 
you know, the the work ethic tradition is basically states that if you're poor, it's because you don't work hard enough, right? Or that leisure is bad, right? And this has been a long problem in the West in general. Is like, how do you conform this idea that, you know, the tradition of the work, Protestant work ethic is leisure is bad, consumption is bad, you should work and save. How does that fit with the consumer society? They've never been able to really match them together. But I suspect this is going to come to a head in the future. But Purcell at this point backs more act because work is being done. So he comes off with a little bit of the work ethic here. And I don't know how honest he is at this point. Um, but anyways, I, I, but I think the bigger theme here is maybe it might just be the need for dualism, the need for two sides to everything, right? So every religion sort of has its dark side as well, right? So Christianity has Satan or Hinduism has Kali cults and things. So there's, you know, always kind of an underside to a lot of traditions and they kind of work together. And maybe it's the same with Morak here. Well, she's about to leave. And she asks Purcell to simply kiss her. He does not really respond or answer, and she just approaches him to kiss him. It's at this point that they notice a juvenile there. Purcell is able to destroy one of them, but there's a few more that see them. And also Blake from the Blake Moffat and I think Luddy come in with cameras and basically expose him as an adulterer. They Before, they had like a fuzzy photo of him with Gretchen, which wasn't really good evidence. Now they have clear evidence that he's doing something suspicious with Gretchen, we know that's not an affair. There's no, you know, except for that fake marriage they seem to have had on on the other planet. There's there's really no evidence of an affair here. But this is Luddy's final vengeance for being fired. This act threatens, or this exposure threatens not only his job, but in a way more importantly, his lease. His lease. Um, you get your leases in this society by basically being moral upright. And the more moral you are, you can get recommended for a home closer to the center. And that's the goal of life is to get closer and closer to the center. And that's how you move up. And so by restraining all your passions and desires, you're able to get a better lease and you can pass that lease on to your children. So that's really what you inherit. It's not wealth isn't measured in the way we measure it with, with money. It's measured here by kind of reputation. And it's the symbol of that is your lease. Well, that night, Purcell tells Janet about everything, basically how he was called out before being a possible adulterer, how he's going to likely lose their lease after the block meeting that I think it's on Wednesday. He and they, So he just started work on Monday and he's already about to lose it by Wednesday. He thinks he can maybe hold on to the job and get a lease through his employment. And there's an interesting little bit here where you got this idea of employment-based housing. And of course, there have always been kind of, not always, but, you know, for since early industrial times, there's been like the idea of the company housing or the company town, right? Now we, we don't have that quite as like we used to, but we still have like the company healthcare, right? So most of us get our healthcare, at least in the United States, through our employer. And if you don't have a job, you're going to have a tough time getting healthcare, you know, if you don't have a lot of money. And that's hence the need for Obamacare and healthcare reform and all that. But that's one of the ways that the work ethic is so powerful. You know, a lot of people maybe could retire because they have enough money or they saved enough or they paid off their mortgage. They can't because of health care. Right. That's what keeps them from being having that freedom to to escape work. And going back to this question of automation and how we're going to deal with that in the future, that almost demands that we do something with health care because a lot of people 
continue to struggle to find work and compete for jobs and stay in the job in the in the employment market simply for healthcare. And here it's like you you know for a place to live even is sometimes tied to your employment. He talks a little bit with his wife about how Malparta was side testing him and he plays with this idea of the clairvoyance that maybe he japed the statue so he'd get fired and maybe that would save him from some worse fate in the future. And I, I think that's not thrown out. Dick doesn't reject that idea fully. He did fail those side tests, but I don't think there's anything conclusive that that's not really going on. And we don't see much of the story past the next few days. So Wednesday comes the block meeting. And this is the weekly meeting where you're supposed to attend and people are called out for their moral failings. And then there's some kind of punishment dealt out. Now, the most severe of these is the loss of a lease. And that's the, that's the most power that these block meeting, these block leaders have over individuals is by the ability to basically kick them out of their home. Which again, is not something that you just earned yourself. It's often inherited from your parents. The major issue in this meeting is Alan Purcell's immorality. And we get a nice little moment in which we we have the kind of the politician the, with the scandal and the politician's wife standing by her man. If you know, we've seen this again and again in, in U.S. politics. Quote, in the freshly starched dress, Janet entered slightly ahead of him. She went directly to a vacant table and placed herself before the microphone. The table, by the unverbalized protocol, was purposely under untaken. In times of real crisis, the wife was expected to aid her husband. To deprive her of that right would have been an affront to Morak. So even if your husband gets exposed as some deviant, right, the, the moral thing for the wife to do is to stand by her man. So there's some, you know, troublesome gender politics here. So we get a long list, like a whole page list of of the crimes that he's he's accused of. Essentially, it's it's adultery. Of course, they call it like vile enterprise in their their newspeak here. But he's also um, accused of breaking the juvenile, right? So that's a that's a serious crime, and they they have a lot. This is well documented. They have the pictures of of the kiss in his office, and actually doing it in the telemedia director's office is another level of of the scandal. So Alan hears these accusations and evidence and he, he gives his defense and his defense isn't bad. He explain he has an explanation for everything that happened. You know, some of it's kind of silly. It's like, well, I was scared so I threw something and it broke the juvenile and, you know, she kissed me, I didn't kiss back. That that kind of defense. Right? I didn't inhale kind of defense. But he finally breaks out and says what he really thinks later on in the proceedings, which is what we're all thinking too, I, I, I presume, most readers are. Quote, I'll tell you what, Alan said, if you identify yourself, I'll knock the living Jesus out of you. I'm fed up with this faceless accusation. Obscene, sadistic minds are using these meetings to pry out all the sordid details, tainting every harmless act by pawning over it, reading filth and guilt into every normal human relationship. Before I step off the stage, I have one general theoretical statement to make. The rule would be a lot better place if there were no more morbid institution like this. More harm is done in one of these sessions than in all the copulation between men and women since the creation of the world. End quote. Um, I guess that's Philip Dick too. I, I see no reason not to think that that's him. And now he's not really writing in a very moralistic age, at least by historical standards. 
but he might be calling on some aspects of 1950s suburban culture in how it it's kind of pries into people's private lights a little bit too much. Now, when the sentence is read, it's basically all they can do. The most serious punishment is the end of the lease. And Purcell's response to this is a simple laugh. And that's significant. Throughout this novel, we get this theme of laughter as a form of resistance. And all Purcell can do at this point, he, he's helpless and he laughs. I think that's symbolically meaningful. And at the end of the meeting, Purcell meets Wales. Now, Wales was the man who defended Purcell in an earlier meeting when he was accused of being coming in drunk, late one day drunk. And he tells him, I couldn't be there to help you because I've actually moved and I got a new lease closer to the center. And we're, we're kind of get a little bit more on this, how this process works, that if you're deemed moral enough, you can be recommended to move closer to the center. And this is the goal. And the, the deviants are sent out through the health resorts and the moral through the leasing system are brought closer and closer to the center. And so that takes us uh, about as much as I want to say in this episode on this. So, um, yeah, I have some final thoughts about this book, but I'm going to hold those off till we get to the conclusion and the climax in, in the next and final episode on this series. But anyways, thank you so much for listening to my thoughts on the works of Philip K. Dick. If you have comments of your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And we will be back with the finale of my coverage of The Man Who Japed. my tired thoughts Leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.